Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Also, like, when when it's like, oh, MSG is bad, it kind of just, like, contributes to, like, this, like, weird junk food perception of Chinese food. And it's like, okay, we're all moving past that. Like, you know, Chinese food is, like, so much more varied, and it, it's not just, like, a greasy late-night thing. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Caitlin and Sarah Leung join me in the studio to talk about their long-running online food blog, The Walks of Life, which is now a cookbook. Oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Now, for anybody who has ever held a walk over high heat, The Walks of Life has likely helped you along the way. They've been a go-to resource for recipes and techniques and really answering your questions about Chinese cooking. I really loved catching up with Caitlin and Sarah and hope you enjoy this conversation. Sarah and Caitlin Leung, welcome to Taste Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having us. I love having two guests. This is rare. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, we're a package deal. You are. (laughs) Well, you have two more that aren't here. Oh, that's right. Technically, (laughs) we're only a half representation today. Well, it's rare, and I want to get into the the structure of the book and how you you devised it. Four authors, your parents, the four of you. Yes, against all the odds, we have come out the other side with a book and our family bond somehow intact. So the four of you wrote this book. How do you divide the labor? How does how do you have four authors and with two of the authors actually are your parents? How does that work? <laughs> um so <laughs> there are first and foremost I feel like the uh, the gorilla in the room is that we do argue and squabble a lot, right? So yeah. I think that there's like an upteenth amount of communication that goes on in our family. But honestly, like, it wouldn't really work any other way. Like, we we all bring um, really unique contributions that are all very complementary. So I think, like, um, it, that goes for how we run our blog, yeah. Walks of Life. It's about how we actually develop recipes and sort of the expertise that we bring into the kitchen and into the cooking techniques and different kinds of dishes that we like mm-hmm. to cook. So um, my dad is very much uh, more technical. Like he had a, a restaurant kitchen background. So um, he comes from a long line of Chinese chefs and he really brings the – he brings the heat on like <laughs> Chinese American classic yeah. dishes and kind of those restaurant secrets. Um, and then my mom is really more, you know, she grew up in China actually. So she is a first generation immigrant to America. So she really has that strong connection to back to China and more of that cultural, nuanced cultural knowledge of, you know, the different provinces and different mm-hmm. styles of cooking and um, you know, that deep respect for tradition as yeah. well. And then 
me and Sarah. Yeah, where do you guys land? Because yeah, they, like, they seem like your parents have a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, and then like then the two of you. Right. It's a huge wind I up. Feel and like, like, I feel like we're, we're partially like the trans. I, I mean, part of our job is to translate that, right? This like a sort of a little of this, a little of that style of cooking that my parents um, employed growing up. You know, like I remember like in our cabinet, there we have this little sugar dish and like in a lot of Chinese dishes, you'll see like a little like a dash of sugar just at the end just to kind of like give yeah. that like bit of contrast and it was like a plastic spoon with the handle broken off <laughs> in the sugar and it's like oh my mom I'm like how much sugar and my mom's like and eh, just like a half of the roughly half of the <laughs> spoon and so like that kind of like cooking by feel approach is really how my parents um cooked for us growing up and when it came time to figure out like okay how do we make those dishes how do mm -hmm. we reproduce those dishes um it really became about my sister and I sort of like translating that generation's knowledge into recipes that felt like we could that were clear and that we could follow yeah. and then we could reproduce over and over and as like as my sister and I have gotten have become recipe developers or developers of Chinese recipes ourselves I feel like, um, you know, sometimes we're looking for sort of like maybe the shortcuts or like, oh, like this, this like quicker and easier version or can we do this in an instant pot or ideas like that that I feel like um, maybe just like bring sort of a modern, slightly modern variation into dishes. But then also like we've we've learned so much over the last like almost 10 years of blogging that my sister and I, too, like, will dig really deep into tradi traditional recipes and techniques Yeah, absolutely. You have well. a historical background and in, in backbone in, in your writing and in, in talking about some of the recipes that you do, the fusion, like Cantonese roast turkey and Chinese-Italian feast of seven fishes, right? <laughs> yes. You've done those. <laughs> yes. Those are fun. I mean, those are absolutely, like, maybe not what your parents are thinking about, but you're thinking about them. Yeah, and I think it's also just, like— um, you know, our family, right? Like our, uh, my aunt, my dad's sister um, married an Italian. And so like that my, our cousins do like a feast of the seven fishes, like Italian American Christmas Eve dinner. And when they come over for Christmas, that's what we do. Yeah. And like, maybe sometimes there's like a little bit of like a Chinese, like a salt and pepper squid in there or something. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like, um, you know, that's what makes the walks of life kind of uh, unique is, you know, with the four or the two generations speaking together um, and not just two generations, but also uh, two, like, you know, my dad uh, is grew up in upstate New York mm -hmm. and my mom grew up in Hubei and Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And so to have those different perspectives um, all sort of wrapped up into one blog. Um, it's special sauce. It's super unique and why I think a lot of readers and, and fans love your your newsletter and your website. Caitlin, tell me, when you launched the website, mm -hmm. like, back 10 years ago, was there a strategy? Did you have content strategy in mind? Did you did – or were you doing the basic food blogging thing where you are just, like, putting up stuff and seeing if it worked? Like, what – because because I asked this because clearly right now you have a really great strategy. Like, there's yeah. really yeah. amazing um, cadence. And mm -hmm. I – you know, coming from the world that you, we share, the food media world, it's great. Like, it's really, 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 really well done. So, like, tell me about the origins. Yeah, I I think in today's like world of food media, there like the pace really is so intense, and there's so much like stuff content creation going on. So like from where we started, it was 
I'll say that there was always this like core DNA of like making sure that it was a family project because we followed, you know, food blogs back in the day. Like we loved Smitten Kitchen. We were like Mm -hmm. Pioneer Woman fans before she like had her Food Network show. So (laughs) we were – we were definitely like, you know, we would log into our favorite food blogs every day and see if they posted something new. Um, But, you know, at the time there really wasn't a clear resource that was for – um, Chinese American born like kids like us basically who wanted to learn how to cook Chinese food, traditional Chinese food, um, but sort of have it be a little bit more um, well packaged than like just my mom being like, oh, it's it's just a little this and a little that, yeah. and you know, here's what you do, and you'll know when it's ready. No, it's you like, can't do that as like a recipe <laughs> right. developer. Like nope. as a beginner, it's very difficult. So. That was, you know, kind of where we started in terms of seeing like, all right, this is kind of something that potentially we could step into. Um, And I think that the unique aspect of it always was that we were interested in doing it with um, our entire family because – so, you know, my two parents and um, me and my sister because at the time actually we had – we were always really close growing up but we had kind of gotten split up because my dad moved – my dad – my parents moved to China for – um, my dad's job. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this really weird time in our lives where we previously like saw each other every day and we're like super close, but, you know, being separated by, you know, 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, was an adjustment. So we kind of really, we were like, okay, we miss the food from home. We have no idea how to cook this food. So like, how can we, number one, stay connected and number two, kind of um, also like translate this knowledge and like kind of yeah, me and, and Sarah begin to like learn how to cook Chinese food? Right. And I think um, to answer your question more pointedly, there was no strategy. <laughs> like I think that when we started it, like if you go back to the sort of like earlier version of like the earliest blog posts, they read a lot more like mm-hmm. sort of a like an early 2000s like kind of blog, yeah. right? Like where you're just kind of sharing your thoughts. They read like diary entries. Um, and for me, uh, starting the blog from a place of like, I just graduated college. I didn't have a job. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And um, for me, I used it as like a creative outlet. And uh, I think as we started to sort of realize like, oh, there's actually an audience here who's like, asking us questions yeah. and like oh do you have this recipe or my grandma used to make this like do you know what that is like as we started getting those sorts of questions we realized like okay like we we actually have uh an audience that trusts our opinion about you know or our like version of a certain dish and i think that that's when we started sort of taking it more a little bit more seriously and more like, okay, we're s- systematically recording some of these classics and um, and we're just, you know, going to sort of start taking it from like a, like, I mean, not to get it too in the weeds, but like from a keyword perspective, it's like, what is, what is somebody going to search for in order to find this dish? Right. Like feathering, like feathering, right? That might or velveting. Be, or velveting. velveting. Why do I yep. call it, I call it feathering, <laughs> which makes no sense, but velveting. <laughs> Okay, so that's my version. But velveting is how I found you. I I was Googling that. I remember Kenji had some um, recipe in his first book. And -hmm. I was like, I don't quite understand it. So I Googled it and I found you guys. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
we take the questions that our readers ask us and they get directly translated into content. Yeah. Um, you know, where Smart. it's like somebody somebody's like, oh, I don't really get that. And then we're like, oh, yeah, we really should explain that. Like, let's write an article about that. Yep. Like, just that. That's and, good. Yeah. But I, I've, one quick thing is like, I feel like, you know, going back to this idea of like, it's all four of us. I think that we were kind of surprised, honestly, when people did kind of have that inherent trust in us because... But I do think it partially is because of it's that family aspect. Like, we started out just wanting to, like, document our family's favorite recipes and, like, our go-to recipes. And I think, like, that's a very relatable thing. And, like, a lot of people saw themselves in that. And, and you know, part of that also is, like, okay, we're we're trying to make this as easy to understand as possible, like, for me and Sarah, too. So, like, that's also something of, like, when we're explaining velveting, like, it's – it's all in service of, like, someone who's cooking at home who's like, oh, crap, like, did I mm-hmm. do this wrong or, like, is something going wrong? And, like, we try to, like, bake that into, like, how we write our recipes. One more know? question about uh, the actual business of Lux of Life. So, first off, is it a business? Is this – do you have full-time jobs in addition to it or is it your job? And, like, backing up, this first part of the question is when did you know it was a hit? Yeah. Um, so we definitely treat it as a business now. Um, it's just gotten so big yeah. and, and it's taken up so much of our time. My sister and I now both work on it full time. Um, Sweet. For several years, <laughs> we were we were holding down the fort on full time jobs yeah. and also doing this like on the weekends, yeah. um, which was it challenging was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely like in it now. Um, and that's great. And I think that um, for me, when I first realized that it was like something was when I started to notice people in the comments like talking to each other. Yeah. Like they would ask each other questions or like a a commenter would be like, oh, like check out this recipe that they have. Like it's really similar. Like, you know, they would answer questions for us. And that was a moment where I was like, there's like a community. Like we have like a community here. (laughs) Absolutely. Who's like, you know, who's on our blog knows who we are and like trusts our recipes enough to like suggest them to other people that's when I felt so like they call that hashtag engagement right? yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly not to get too not to get all wonky but yeah but, but it clearly and then so this is your full-time job and we'll get to the cookbook obviously you're here to talk about your debut cookbook which I love but I want to know is the business growing in other directions outside of the cookbook television podcasts any of that stuff I'm just curious because I mean it's really res- I respect it so much running your own food media business Hard to do. You're making it look easy. Well, that's a big compliment. <laughs> um, I think that, yeah, I, I mean, the cookbook is obviously such a huge kind of like sigh of relief now that it's yeah. actually like done and it's, it's um, you know, about to come out. But I think that we're all sort of, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing because it is the four of us that we kind of like, there are different things that like me and my sister could do. And then there are things that we could all do as a family. I think we're trying to get more into, like, video content. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like we're, like, you know, we're not inking a deal with Food Network or anything like that. Um, Soon, like six months from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the works. <laughs> it's in the works. Um, but uh, I think just, like, make – like, people today just, like, want to see more in action of, like, how a recipe comes together. So there's just been such a big demand for that in general. So I think that's something that we're we're trying to – branch more into um but yeah i think honestly like we were i think we're it like we put so much into the cookbook that we're just like having a little breathing period absolutely (laughs) absolutely i mean you should and you should you should celebrate when you can 
because these things don't come around every day. So celebrate. Okay, so I actually didn't find you from that velveting SEO moment. I actually found you from my friend Judith. My friend Judith is like the biggest fan. Shout out to Judith. And <laughs> I texted her last night. I said, like, I got the Walks of Life here. She's like, oh, shit, I love the Walks of Life. I love their site. I'm like reading it, the text right here. She has a couple questions. So I, I wanted to jump into Judith's questions before I get into a few of mine. Okay, fill in the blank. Everyone in the U.S. would be better off food-wise if blank were as widely available in the supermarket as milk and eggs and people knew how to cook with them. Sarah, you want to take it? Wow, that is a a good good one. Um, I think vegetables. Just the variety of leafy, of Asian leafy greens that are available in your average Chinese or Korean or Southeast Asian market. Um, You know, when I walk into a regular grocery store, or I'm limited to a regular grocery store, I'm I'm looking at the vegetable selection and I'm just like, man, this is like really light. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm either eating kale or I'm eating broccoli. And like, that's like, <laughs> those are the options. And I, you know, I think that I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating, but like, there's so many just like great way to cook vegetable, great ways to cook vegetables. And I feel like in here in the US, like we see them as like this sort of side dish, like the thing yeah. that goes on side the side, salad. right? The side of the Beans main event. On the side, yeah. Right. And um, when, you know, in Chinese cooking, they are like the main event. They're, yeah. they're uh, something to be cherished as much as, uh, you know, the protein. So I, I think, I think that like the, if everybody just, Eat more like delicious and could see how tasty. But you write in the book, you use the term lip smacking vegetables found throughout China, and you're trying to replicate lip smacking vegetables. And I, I, I like hung on that for a bit and I thought about it. And so, what makes the vegetables in in China, if you're going uh, to visit your your mom's family, what makes them different there? What makes this lip smacking quality? Yeah, I think I think it's high heat cooking is a big Def. part of it, yeah. right? You have that like wok hay element. Um, and then part of it is just like because the vegetable is the main event, like there might be meat in the dish, right? But it's like a, a small amount that's sort of like complement, like you know, a little bit of pork belly that's just you know kind of creating that like little bit of like glistening richness that uh, to to like say it like a cauliflower, and then from that like you're like wow, this cauliflower is like deliciously savory, but there's you know there's not. There's like maybe three ounces of meat in the exactly. entire Exactly. It's right. such a small amount, right? Yeah. It, it's it's for But it flavor. makes a huge difference. Yeah. And yeah. I think also like cutting it into smaller pieces, like it's just a more enjoyable like eating experience when you're not like gnawing your way through like a giant piece of broccoli and it's like <laughs> cut into like a bite-sized piece that you can pick up with your chopstick right. and – you know, that like knife, of, like the knife skills and like knowing like, OK, what size am I cutting the vegetables? If I'm if I'm making a stir fry with different vegetables, what size and shape is each vegetable going to be such that mm-hmm. when I'm eating this dish, like I'm getting like the ideal textural experience? I think that. Well, that and that everything of, will cook at the same time. Exactly. Right. It's the cooking, the, yeah. right, cooking the walk rate. It's like it needs to cook evenly. Right. Yes. And I think American kitchens tend to go with the big whole head cauliflower. Yeah. Big pieces of bro- <laughs> right. I mean, they're so pr- prominent and, you know. Love a whole cauliflower head, yeah. but, but for stir fry, you gotta gotta like really spend that time in the right. kitchen, right? Chopping, yep. yeah, totally, yeah. And I think that that thoughtfulness of like how how am I cutting this vegetable such that it's going to be its 
best in the final dish. Um, you know, I feel like that's like such a huge part of Chinese cooking. Mm-hmm. There's so many great recipes. And I want to cover some specific recipes. I want to cover some of the chapters and some of the areas that you've focused on. But one recipe that jumps out or more of a combination is cabbage, pork, oyster sauce and and wine and aromatics, of course, garlic, ginger. Mm-hmm. What is so? What is it about that combination? Like, I love cooked cabbage. I make this myself. Like, if I'm gonna stir fry, it's like definitely my go-to Napa. Mm-hmm. Always. What What is it about this combination? I <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier, and I feel like at least okay. I'll say for pork, at least like I feel like pork is just like the king of meats. Like, there's just something about pork that is so distinctive mm-hmm. and like. It's like an irreplaceable flavor. Like, you know, there's like vegan beef and there's vegan chicken, but like there's no vegan pork. Like it's so well said. Things that like you can't can't do it. Like capture that lightning in a bottle. It's just uh, its own thing. But I feel like, I don't know, it it is an interesting question because, yeah, like there's like that trinity of like ginger garlic scallion. And like they're like when those flavors come together, it's just it's just like harmony and and oyster sauce makes everything. Yeah, See, oyster that's sauce the is kicker, like <laughs> right. Oyster sauce and pork and then whatever vegetable leafy vegetable it could be Chinese broccoli, it could be cabbage, it could be even like Brussels sprouts if you want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Something about it. Oyster sauce is amazing. Yeah. It yeah, is. oyster sauce is very underappreciated. Our our grandfather um yeah used to say if you want to make it taste better, just add oyster sauce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. was his like little motto. You know, sriracha has gotten the press. But, like, let's maybe put sriracha aside yeah. and just, like, let's get oyster sauce <laughs> totally. in the conversation. I completely agree. Yeah. I want to talk about dim sum because you you have a very extensive dim sum category or, sorry, chapter. And I feel like I have questions about this because, like, we've got great dim sum in most cities. Mm-hmm. Am I actually making these dishes at home or is this just a way to, like, let us appreciate what goes into a dim sum meal and experience you're making them at home like this these these recipes are doable and you can make them at home and strong statement that is something (laughs) right no totally and that is something that we you know when we started the blog we never thought like we would be able to replicate some of these dim sum items like we like there it was like there were like in a black box and we just like had no idea what are some of them like the taro puffs, we are really proud of that yes. that recipe in this book because they taste spot on. And that recipe was a challenge. It was a big yeah. challenge for my dad to develop it. Um, but, you know, he nailed it. And, like, they're delicious. And I think— Well, for people who don't know what they are, they're, like, right. these wispy fritters of taro. And then inside it's this, like— molten pork filling and like the wispy part is the <laughs> trick. Right. And that's that's the part where you kind of get psyched out at home. It's like but but it like require I, some I, alchemy. For sure. <laughs> I think that I think that the key to a lot of these recipes is just knowing how to do it. Because like for example, you know at dim sum they have those like fried sesame balls. Mm-hmm. They're like so hard to get that architecture. Hard to get that yes. shape. Yes. yes. And yeah. that recipe took my dad maybe 4 or 5 years. <laughs> Um, yeah. because he just didn't, 
He was like experimenting. They were exploding in the oil. It was like, oh my gosh, like why he are they He had to exploding? take like a two-year hiatus because he needed like a break. I yeah. love your dad. And it was like, you know, but then once you have that formula, once you know what you're doing, then it's like, oh, I can reproduce this every time, no problem. Yeah. Um, and actually some of the recipes are pretty simple. Like the, the first recipe in the entire book is my, uh, my pork and shrimp shumai. And it's as easy as mixing a filling in a KitchenAid mixer or you can mix by hand. Um, putting them, you know, stuffing like thin dumpling wrappers and steaming them. And that's it. Yeah. And it's super simple and yeah. tastes really, And really you have wrapper recipes, but I think you can say you, you could, could substitute. Yeah. yeah. Store-bought yeah. is fine. Store-bought is fine if you can get it. Yeah. Store-bought is ideal. Back to fried dough. Because fried dough in Chinese cooking to me, it's like a category, right? I feel like I really want to hear about it through the culture because it seems like it's not just a fritter. Mm-hmm. It's like p- about the texture, right? It's about the explosion of yes. texture and some flavor and oil. Yes. It's about the layering of the dough. Yes. So like it's it's like how the dough comes together, yes. But then it's about like once it's made, like how you rest it and how you roll it out, how you like put it in a spiral and then roll it out again. And like all of those things kind of lead to this like – well, at least for something like a scallion pancake or like a bing or something that you have. Like, mm-hmm. I think a bing's right away. Like that's like its own category. Yeah. Like yeah. all that stuff is like laminated gloriousness that just like when it hits the oil just like takes on a completely different characteristic. And I think like, yeah, like there's like there's donuts and things like that and like more what you kind of would expect when you think of the word like fried dough or like a yotiao, which is like a, a fried like cruller. But I think like getting like the the scallion pancakes and like the the crispy bottom of like a baozi like it's just it kind of is its own like unique texture and mm-hmm. honestly largely because a lot of chinese homes like in china don't have ovens like you're cooking yep. on the walk so like if you're making like if you're in northern china and, and you have a dough like it's either getting steamed or it's getting pan fried yep so that's kind of i feel like why well said it's, i mean that makes sense it's like a very practical answer yeah why that's a category yeah, but obviously delicious and delicious. i whenever, whenever you go to china like the first thing i want is like it's fried dry. dough in any form and i'm like breakfast of champions okay dumplings on the on the spot boiled fried or steamed sarah first what do you think depends Great. Yes. Thank you for not answering the question. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I would say if, like, gut reaction, like, gun to my head, it's <laughs> fried. But I will say that if it kind of depends on the freshness of the dumpling. If your dumpling is, like, if you just made them, yeah. I would suggest boiling um, because that's when you really taste the filling. Um, so well said, really yeah. You can really taste the juiciness yep, and freshness yep. of the filling. If your dumplings have been sitting in the freezer for, like, a, a month or two, then, like, fried all the way. Um, yeah. Steamed, though, has its own, like, vibe. Like, they're drier. They're a little bit chewier. It has more of, like, that al dente kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So they each have their merits, but... I would say fried if I if I had to choose. Yeah. Caitlin. Um yeah, you know, I'm a sucker for fried too. Like the chili oil falling over a fried mm-hmm. dumpling is just ugh, unparalleled. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I'm with you. I think fried is great, but like when you get like twelve boiled dumplings on a plate and eat them in like three and a half minutes. That's true. Such a great feeling. That's true. <laughs> that feeling, right? <laughs> um I want to talk about MSG. We we talk about it a bit, you know, here at Taste and, and very pro MSG, obviously, here. We've written about it mm-hmm. uh, many times. In, I've written about it in Food IQ, book I did. But um, 
you also have a note in it, so I wanted to bring it up um, because I still think our listeners might be living in the past, might be living in the dark ages mm-hmm. and still actually think that quote-unquote Chinese restaurants – Syndrome. Yeah, syndrome. Yeah. That's right. what I was trying to think right. about. Is right. it Chinese restaurant syndrome or yep. hold the MSG when you're calling for takeout at your place? But, like, let's, like, go there and maybe debunk that bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, like, I'm not going to get into it, but, like, it, there's, like, really – yeah, it's been debunked by science. Like, there's no negative effects on MSG. Um, I think, you know, it, it's up to everybody's individual, right? Like, if you don't – if you have some negative reaction. But I think it's it's one of those things that can – when it's maligned as much as it is, it kind of, like, veers into, like, an unfair characterization of all Chinese food and all, and all Chinese restaurants and chefs and how they cook. And it's really just, like – this incredibly amazing flavor amplifier and it does not take a lot like it's like a little pinch here a little pinch there it's not like it's you know a crazy yeah. amount yeah msg makes food taste better <laughs> at yeah. some time i mean you don't Period. need it all the time right like a lot of dishes you don't need it but in certain things like in the book and that's why we included it in the book mm-hmm. because there were there are certain recipes like a handful maybe fewer that we feel like MSG just, like, pushes this one, like, a little bit, like, just over that the edge of, like, from, like, good to amazing. Yeah, to, like, this umami, right? Like, right. that level that we try to reach as home cooks because yeah. oftentimes we under-season our food and we're like, why does it not taste as good as the restaurant? Right. Also, like, MSG, if you, like, had that bag of Doritos this morning, like, or afternoon or whenever you ate Doritos, mm-hmm. you're eating some MSG. Yeah, and MSG oh, comes yeah. in different forms. Like, yeah. disodium guanolate is just another version yeah. of, so people don't, may not see monosodium glutamate on in the, the ingredients, mm-hmm. but there's, like, another ingredient in there hiding as MSG. <laughs> right. And I think that, you know, yeah, like MSG also occurs naturally in like tomatoes, which is something that and we beef. and yeah, and yeah. like Parmesan cheese oh. and it's all delicious foods, all delicious things. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's just like it should go from this sort of like idea, like we're 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 advocating for it to be thought of as just another spice in your spice cabinet, just another like tool that you can bring out when you're making like a hot and sour soup, just to like you know. Just Absolutely, right. that's yeah. that's that's how we write about it here at Taste and in my books because I think it's a, it's a great tool and you should buy it. You should buy a bottle or jar of it and experiment and obviously cut it with salt. It's not just going in there like right. without salt. You got to cut. It. A lot of people maybe don't know that you got to cut cut it. Yeah, right? it's like a finishing ingredient. Yeah, totally. It's like the last touch. And I guess like one quick thing is like also like when when it's like, oh, MSG is bad, it kind of just, like, contributes to, like, this, like, weird junk food perception of Chinese food. And it's like, okay, we're all moving past that. Like, you know, Chinese food is, like, so much more varied, and it's not just, like, a greasy late-night thing. So, you know, it's time time to ditch the negative perceptions around MSG. Well, we just published this beautiful book about vegan Chinese cooking here. Yes. Oh, my God. Beautiful book. We we just got it. Gorgeous from Hannah Che. Yeah. We're very excited to jump into it. Yeah, it's great. And your book as well. Like, these books are are hopefully changing the the perception. I mean, the American Chinese food is its own category and lovely and we we love it for many reasons. I'm using love three times because (laughs) who doesn't? But um, agree fully, like, moving on. Beyond that is is great for everyone. Yeah. Um, let's talk about fried rice because yes. I think fried rice at home is can be one of the easiest things to make, especially if you have some day old rice around. But I wanted to get either of yours opinion about 
what are we doing potentially wrong with our fried rice when we like get it and we're like, okay, this doesn't quite hit the way that mm-hmm. my favorite Korean restaurant or Chinese restaurant, Japanese restaurant is doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, MSG for one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also I would say, not that every restaurant uses it, but I would say the biggest mistake is not preheating the wok properly before you add oil or any other ingredients. Dry, hot A dry, wok. like yep. hot wok. And really, really screaming hot. Yeah, and what, when your wok is sort of like smoking lightly, that's when you know, and then you pour the oil in and then it starts to smoke even more and then you're like, okay, we're good, let's let's start. Because basically what that does is it creates a nonstick surface. So what I, a lot of complaints we get around uh, fried rice or sort of like questions around it is like, my rice is sticking. Why is it sticking? I can't like I can't get it <laughs> to not just be this like sticky wet mess. And I think that wok preheating step is key. And then also the other key is not overcrowding. Mm-hmm. So not trying to put too many ingredients into into that wok. Otherwise you're gonna you're gonna end up with like a a wetter kind of end result that doesn't quite have that. It doesn't have that lightness. So a couple yeah. follow up questions. Which oil are we using for fried rice? Is there like a preferred because I know smoke point with olive oil can be quite low right. and not great, though olive oil may work. I don't want to like put Yeah, like a mouth. light olive oil has a higher smoke point. I feel like yeah. it's designed for that. Um, yeah. So it can work, but honestly, like any high smoke point oil that – With a know, neutral flavor. With a neutral flavor yeah. is fine. Like you could use peanut oil, which is kind of like a classic Chinese cooking yeah. oil, but – um, not necessarily. Canola oil. Yeah, vegetable. Um, we use like, avocado oil. Avocado oil has a smoke point of like 500 degrees. It's yeah. really, really yeah. great to have avocado yeah, it's oil. Really yeah, absolutely amazing. love that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Any think, neutral oil, really. Yeah, I, yeah. And I think that the other thing is like drying out the rice. Drying out the rice. Yeah, putting it in your freezer. Right. Like it can yeah. feel really fussy to be like, oh, I have to dry my rice. And it's like, okay, like if you wanted to make great fresh- fussy voice. Into that. <laughs> If you wanted to make fresh rice, then you have to like, you know, whatever. (laughs) Like, but it's really just like, and you know, you fluff it out, you let it cool off. You might like spread it out on like a a plate or a pan or something, or like, yeah, let it sit in the fridge for a few days. Not all of us have that self control to think ahead to (laughs) get the leftover rice. But can you pop um, it in the freezer for like three hours? I've never tried tried that. that, I think that the freezer changes the rice a bit too much. But I I feel like it. Because it, it does, like, the grains It would break, break. it up. Yeah. yeah. Then you would then, have, like, a broken rice. It feels a little rice. broken, yeah. I have another question. So I'm sitting in and looking at, like, I have, like, the trinity of garlic scallions and ginger. I've got maybe some pork. Mm-hmm. I've got um, vegetables. Like, mm-hmm. I've got, like, root vegetables, carrots, potentially. Then I've got leafy vegetables. And then I've got my rice. We could, like, mix and match a bunch of other things. So when do you actually put the rice in? What step? So the rice, so okay, so you're you're gonna your oil, your aromatics, then you're adding like whatever like the sort of hard vegetables are, like if you got carrots going, mm-hmm. if you have like any kind of like harder root vegetable that takes a little bit broccoli, longer. Broccoli corn, to cook. not corn, sorry, broccoli, yeah. broccoli, broccoli, broccoli. Or if you're using something like that, you could blanch it first so that you yep. don't have to do that. Um so the rice goes in pretty much right after that. Um if the the pork you've pre- you've like velveted and you've pre-cooked already. Yep. So that's like, that doesn't go in until later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then the rice goes in and then your seasoning and then your goal there is to sort of spread the rice around the surface of the wok to heat it through. And then when you see steam rising from the rice, that's when you're like, okay, now I can, now I'm ready to finish. And like, you're almost done. Finish um, with what? Sesame oil? 
Yeah, like whatever your soy sauce. Soy sauce yeah, oil, whatever your sauces are, whatever your um chili crisps. It's, it's your dep- final ingredients. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um it depends on the rice, but yeah. One more Judith question for a reminder, my friend who's a, a, a huge fan and uh turned me on to walks of life. Okay, so one each. Uh which Chinese dish do you think everyone should learn to make? That's a good oh, Judith with you. I, know, right? I was like, I got this at like literally midnight, and I'm like, thank you. <laughs> huh. You know, hmm. I feel like I would pick something that's kind of like high on the technique index, like a few more out there ingredients, because I think in an ideal world, like people would you know, be able, first of all, be able to get those ingredients a little bit more easily and also have an appreciation for things like things like oyster sauce and things like dark soy sauce and um, like chili oil that just like have this like very irreplaceable flavor. Like one of our most popular recipes and honestly might be my answer is Mapo tofu, yeah. which I feel like, first of all, people love. So they're already kind of like on it. Um, but it, it has like spicy bean paste and chili oil and like you know, though we'll get questions of like, oh, I don't have spicy bean paste. Like, can I substitute? And it's like, eh, y- you can substitute, but it's not it's not quite the Please same. Please follow the recipe. Right. Dear so like, I, want, the recipe. I want everybody to have the enjoyment of mm-hmm. like making it like where they're like, oh, my God, wow, this like really tastes the way it should taste. Um, so I feel like a dish like that is good because everybody can kind of like see under the proverbial hood of Chinese <laughs> cooking, you know, like. A little extra challenge. I would say my, like, an everyday, like, a a stir fry, like, a a vegetable stir fry that you can adapt to whatever it is. Like, whatever that, like, half of a rib of celery left and, like, the half an onion in your fridge. And you just have all these, like, random scraps of vegetables in your fridge at the end of the week. And you're like, what do I do with these? And you can make a really delicious, uh... Veg, like mixed vegetable stir fry and like I know like mixed vegetables sounds super like uh, like not super exciting but I think that um it's really I I think people will be surprised at how delicious like a bell pepper a carrot some celery and some mushrooms can taste mm-hmm. together when you cook them in this way um and how exciting it can taste and I think uh yeah we have we have a recipe like that on the blog um and I use it all the time to clean out yeah. my, my I feel like at the, end the, of the finer week. point on that is like how exciting it can taste when it seemingly is just a pile clean of up. like yeah. yeah, like mop up. I don't know how appetizing any individual one of these items looks, but then when you like make it into a quick stir fry, you're like, Oh my god, I really like pulled a rabbit out of a hat. Let's here. go into the <laughs> flavor profile of this. So so you've got your vegetables cooking. So what is the actual like the oomph, the seasoning to it? It's oy- it's oyster sauce. Yes. Um chicken stock uh really like amps up the flavor of vegetables. Um if you are trying to go vegetarian, like a mushroom stock or a vegetable mm-hmm. stock would also work um and there's also vegetarian oyster sauces as well um and then garlic 
um, maybe a little bit of ginger at the beginning just to, in, like, slices. Like one slice, Just to, like, yeah. infuse mm-hmm. the oil a little bit. So you just have, like, that, like, whisper of ginger, but you're not, like, biting into pieces yeah. of Yeah, it doesn't ginger. taste like ginger ale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that's basic. Cool. And then, like, a, a thickener, you know, you're just, like, thickening it, thickening it with a little bit of cornstarch corn slurry yeah. just to, like, bind it all together um, into a sauce and, yeah. And a little MSG maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. maybe. Yep. No, I think it's a really great point about how simple and and how um, like unintimidating mm-hmm. making a stir fry can be. Yeah, and without having to go to that like pre made sauce. Not not hating on it, but not the best. Right. Yeah. Maybe it, not. it just unnecessary. It's a better value to buy the individual components of what would go into a pre made sauce than the pre made sauce. Into that, I want to talk about the book's design because I I think. And your designer, who I know, and I'd like to sing her praises because we don't do that enough here on the show. But I love how it flows. I love the use of lines. I I just think it's a really well-designed book. Not every book is well-designed, and this one really stands out. So how did that style take shape? And and shout out your designer. Let's (laughs) do it. Yes, yes. So Jen Wang uh, is our cookbook designer, and she did an incredible job because – we could literally have a whole podcast about the design process of this cookbook because it was very tricky. And, you know, from day one when we were talking to prospective publishers, that was like the design was a huge priority for me because this book is all about intuitively conveying this like family story that we're bringing to the table and also this like nostalgia aspect but also the like – Chinese heritage of it all, mm-hmm. but we're also trying to make it modern. It's it's like, and it's from four voices. That's the hardest part of the four yeah. voices. Yeah. So too. like, there's just so many. We were working with so many different constraints and like information hierarchies that we had to wrap into this like beautiful like 320 page book. And you know, like for example, if like I go into like the four authors, right? So it's like. We were like, okay, like, do we use, like, little pictures of ourselves? Do we use, like, colors? And ultimately, that's what we ended up going with is, like, kind of different colors for different authors and, um, you know, just trying to, like, help the reader visualize, like, not just on the, with the name, but, like, see, like, oh, this is Bill's, Bill's recipe. This is Judy's recipe, Sarah's, Caitlin's. Um, so that was a big feat. I think that the other part of it was – um, this idea of like, what does a modern Chinese aesthetic even look like? 100% agree. Really hard to nail that. It's really tricky because if you like draw like a graph, it's like you could like veer way too far into the like stereotypical visions of China the and Orientalism, the Orient. Yeah, yeah that like people have or like, you know, kind of like this weird like Microsoft clip art kind of version of like the little takeout box with the chopsticks which has kind of just been done already a lot you know like I think it has its purpose like no, oh it's no pretty sh- dope no when it's done right like, yeah. yeah yeah but I think it's just one of those you know people kind of maybe tune out right and yeah. and then if you go like too f- if you go further into like China and like archetypal Chinese designs then you're sort of starting to feel like oh but where's like the Americanness of it all Um, so that was incredibly difficult. And, you know, like even in, like, if you think about it, right, it's like, is it also just 
Chinese because it was a Chinese artist or a Chinese designer? Like, where's the lines of, like, what looks Chinese? Mm -hmm. So I think we ended up with, like, a really beautiful solution, which Jen did many, many iterations of. And she ended up finding this really beautiful, like, archival Chinese porcelain design, which is what, you know, you can see kind of running along the the top of the book. And it's a theme um, inside the book. And, And we took pains also to, like, in our fabric choices, like, find, like, antique Chinese fabrics that would kind of like easily for the photography to be for the photography yeah for the backdrops to kind of like convey kind of the tone that we were looking for but yeah like a really challenging set of like design issues and then on top of it all like kind of making it feel reminiscent of the blog, which also has its own look and feel. <laughs> so so. And you, all the archival photography really works well, too. You have some wonderful photos in there of your family yeah, trips. And, yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. part of it, too, of, like, making it feel like part photo album, like family photo album almost, too. Well, shout out to Jen. I, I think it's a beautiful book. I hope everyone picks it up. I have one more youth question, and then we'll close. Um, so let's, Sarah, take this one. <laughs> what changes have you seen in the last 20 years or so in terms of the availability of ingredients? I guess I'll follow it up and say, do you think that it's gotten better or do we have a long way to go in terms of all home cooks being able to cook your book? I think it has gotten a lot better. Um, I think a big part of it is, I mean, you're. De- I'm seeing tofu, medium, firm, firm, mm-hmm. soft, and silken. <laughs> In a regular grocery store now, which is like amazing. Like yeah. I can walk That's into a big. I can walk into like triumph. a stop and shop and get tofu. It's rad, and then maybe even fresh tofu, like the olive bar. Maybe yeah. it'll be a fresh tofu yeah. bar. That would be point. amazing. That'd be great. Um, but yeah, like so, I'm seeing more ingredients in the sort of regular grocery stores, and then in terms of like uh, the availability of. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're not living in a large city with like a larger Asian population. These things, you know, that may not be true for you, but there are definitely um, a lot more sort of e-commerce uh, Chinese ingredients vendors who are like, will ship nationwide, you so know, cool. ship your chili oil, ship your like chili crisp. Um, so that's been a huge resource for us because we, we're we constantly getting that, those questions yeah. of like, where do I get this? I, I don't have like a, a ch- Chinese grocery store. And Amazon me. can be challenging. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's a lot of, it can get pricey pretty pricey, fast. Pricey, yeah. yeah. like weird like quality, you don't know what yeah. you're getting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so having those um, like uh, Po Wing Hong is uh, a store h- here in New York um, and they ship, they ship nationwide dry goods. Yeah. So, like, yeah. to be like, oh, you're getting ingredients direct from Manhattan Chinatown, um, that, that is a great thing. Say that again? Po Wing Hong. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you go to – it's powingonline.com. Yep. And then yep. I'll shout out Kalustians. Online is great. Yep. Uh, AsianVeggies.com. That's a good site. Yeah. Uh, there's also um, sayweee.com. Justasianfood.com. There's yamibai.com, umami cart. There's just like a lot yeah. more of these uh, these um, e-commerce vendors who are are uh, shipping Asian ingredients um, direct to your house. So that's As that's I say awesome. – there are people who live in a Chinese food desert where it's yep. like they really just can't like they're you know there's nothing in the surrounding area so it's really convenient for yeah. but also maybe like seek out your Asian market your Korean market your Chinese market That's, too yeah. because you you know unless you live really in a desert which may happen and you go online there it's you know just gotta like Google that's very true if you just Google like Asian market near me you'll you'll odds likely are. find odds are yeah. you'll find one yeah. and don't feel intimidated like I I hear a lot of 
um, our readers are like, oh, I just felt really intimidated to go in there. And I, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't sure what I should get or if I should be, you know. And I think that that was a big goal on our blog to like with our ingredients glossary to give people the information to feel confident when they walk into that store. Like, here's what I need to get for this recipe. And like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to cook it. And it, like, I feel like that is such a big part of the blog in addition to the recipes is just like the knowledge around the ingredients mm-hmm. and and what to do with them. And listen, like every grocery store has crabby attendants and shopkeepers, but listen, like if you go up to somebody and ask a question, I've usually encountered a very positive experience. I've had a positive mm-hmm. experience. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of readers are like, I just show them the picture from the blog yeah. Yeah. and then that's they'll awesome. take me right to it. So like <laughs> that's also an option. Yeah, go visit your local uh, supermarket. It, it, it's fun. It's a it's a great experience. You know. Yeah. Okay. We asked all guests in the Taste podcast. There was a dream food or food book or cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds to make it happen. What would that book be? I'm going to give each of you the opportunity to answer this. So, Sarah, you first. Okay. So for <laughs> me, this would be a book where we traveled to China, me, my whole family, my parents and my sister, and we just went to like random villages and said, like found like the best cook in that village Mm -hmm. and just like asked them to like teach us. And, and then like we, like I would love to just like include all these people's stories in the book. Um, and, and really just make it an exploration of like Chinese regional home cooking um because you know you have like even in china you have like your restaurant food and then you have like the home food the like it's nong jia cai is what it's called in chinese like sort of like country or like the sort of chinese equivalent of like farm to table Mm -hmm. um and that is like sort of like the soul like it's like soulful cooking and there's great youtubes that cover the style of cooking yeah Uh, yeah Mm -hmm. um so i would love to do that just to go to different provinces and and learn from people i hope i hope it's in the works caitlin how about yourself so i think it would be interesting to do like a catalog of different like the chinese diaspora the chinese food diaspora of how chinese cooking and flavors are interpreted based on like local preference so like if you think about like east coast versus like west coast chinese american food like it's really different like in um here in the northeast like a thing that used to be more common is like getting those little like fried wonton strip chips with like the duck sauce like at the table and like we wrote a post about it and like people like not from the Northeast. We're like, I've never seen that. And we were like, oh my God, what? So, you know, there's just like within America, there's variation. Like if you go to like the UK or like India or like mm-hmm. really anywhere. Yeah, Indo-Chinese food. It's just like how like Chinese food has been like assimilated in yeah, all of the places cool. it has. Exactly. It I feel like that traveled. would be a cool project. I think both of these could be great. It could be individual. They could be unified in a yeah, cool way. Yeah. Sarah and Caitlin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. This was awesome. Yeah, this was great. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.